morning mainly on verses 9 to 13, but I think we'll read the whole chapter. It will give us more of the context and help us get into the flow. So, Zechariah 9, verse 1, it's on page 954. The word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach and will rest upon Damascus, for the eyes of men and all the tribes of Israel are on the Lord. And upon Hamath too, which borders on it, and upon Tyre and Sidon, though they are very skillful. Tyre has built herself a stronghold. She has heaped up silver like dust and gold like the dirt on the streets. But the Lord will take away her possessions and destroy her power on the sea, and she will be consumed by fire. Ashkelon will see it in fear. Gaza will writhe in agony. And Ekron too, for her hope will wither. Gaza will lose her king, and Ashkelon will be deserted. Foreigners will occupy Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. I will take the blood from their mouths, their forbidden fruit from between their teeth. Those who are left will belong to our gods, and become leaders in Judah, and Ekron will be like the Jebusites. But I will defend my house against marauding forces. Never again will an oppressor overrun my people, for now I am keeping watch. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on the colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pits. Return to your fortress, O prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. I'll bend Judah as I bend my bow and fill it with Ephraim. I will rouse your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and make you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them. His arrow will flash like lightning. The sovereign Lord will sound the trumpets. He will march in the storms of the south, and the Lord Almighty will shield them. They will destroy and overcome with sling stones. They will drink and roar as with wine. They will be full like a bowl used for sprinkling the corners of the altar. The Lord their God will save them on that day as the flock of his people. They will sparkle in his land like jewels in a crown. How attractive and beautiful they will be. Grain will make the young men thrive and new wine the young woman. Well, let's pray before we turn to this passage. Our Father, your word tells us that your grace is sufficient, that your power is made perfect in our weakness. Well, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, of my tiredness, of my weariness that the power of Christ may rest on me. Please, by your Spirit, 
Open our eyes to see wonderful things in your words. Amen. I'm still trying to work out what is the correct etiquette for congregational participation in sermons at Charlotte Chapel. And it's a twofold uncertainty. From this side of things, it's, it's dangerous because I have no idea what you might do or say. It's kind of don't work with animals or children or a congregation. Uh, from your side of things, I know that when I'm sitting in the pew, I am uncomfortable with anything that will make me open my mouth or uncross my arms. It's just not my cup of tea. I was at a church a few months back and listening to a great sermon, but suddenly in the middle of it, the pastor said, uh, all of you who love Jesus, raise your hands. And I was caught in this dilemma. (laughs) I felt peer pressured into audience participation because I do love Jesus, but I hate audience participation. So I was stranded in this no man's land of self-conscious flux. (laughs) What do you do? But I wonder if I was to say this morning, hands up, how many of you feel like rejoicing this morning? (laughs) How many of you could honestly put your hands up? I don't know. If I was to say, how many of you were delighted at the prospect of getting out of bed and coming to meet with God and his people this morning? How many of you could raise your hands with integrity? I wonder... If the two commands in this passage, when we read, rejoice greatly in verse 9, and then return to your fortress, your gods, in verse 12, sound attractive to you. My guess is that for some of us, some of the time, the inverse of those things sound more promising. Weeping at the moment comes more naturally than rejoicing. And the idea of running away from God is far more attractive than returning to him. Now that line of reasoning wouldn't have been alien for God's people who heard these words for the first time. They had only recently returned from exile, having spent years under enemy rule. But 20 years after that return, they were still under opposition rule. 20 years later, their city still was in ruins. And they were still limping from the political and social and economic uh, downturn from that exile. And if that wasn't enough, the memory of their past glories, what we once were, just rubbed salt in the present struggle wounds. And not only that... Opposition didn't just come from outside of God's people. It came from inside. And they were buffeted from every side, standing humiliated before the nations. No doubt the temptation to weep and to run away from God were more pleasant to them than to rejoice and to return to them. Now, it is my guess that what was not alien to them is not foreign to us. Some of us, uh, church is not what we thought it would be. Maybe this church is not where we think it should be. Maybe you're a new Christian, and the life of Christianity hasn't lived up to what you thought it was going to be. In fact, life is harder now than it ever has been. Or maybe you've 
been on the track for years. And you can remember the days when this building was brimming. You can remember when we used to go out and do open airs on the mound, and yet the struggles of today seem to outsing those memories. Other Christians let you down. And when you look at non-Christians, actually they seem to be the ones who prosper. They seem to be the ones who have a life of ease. And maybe the thought pattern has gone through your head, well, even just pragmatically for me and my family, maybe I should just pursue the best life possible because faithfulness to God hasn't served me too well so far. I was at this conference, New World Live, this past week, and the amount of teenagers that I had a one-to-one chat with who were literally weeping and thinking about giving up on Christianity stunned me. I'll give you two examples. One, one young girl who said in her own words had self-esteem struggles, who in the last year had turned to self-harm and two attempts at suicides. High school to her was just too much to bear. On the complete other end of the spectrum, I met a young guy who was evidently hugely talented at rugby, snapped up by one of the clubs. He's in their program and tipped for uh, England stardom. And he looked at me and he said, you know what, the, the promises of this world, the pleasures of this world just look more attractive to me than Christianity. And I fear that if I choose rugby, I might give up on Jesus. Now that's teenagers. Most of us maybe have more... Uh, bigger struggles, more complicated struggles than that. Well, the words of Zechariah come, although not written to us originally, have been recorded for us. And so the voice of Zechariah, transmitted down through the centuries, boosted by the voice of Christ, hit our eardrums this morning, and they say two things. On the one hand, they are going to say, rejoice in your king. And on the other hand, they are going to say, return to your fortress. So firstly, from verses 9 and 10, Zechariah says to us, rejoice in your king. At first, a command to joy, to command someone to rejoice, seems at best weird and at worst uh, insensitive. You can't trivialize someone's present struggles by just saying, oh, be happy. It's a bit like a joke. It comes instantaneously. You don't hear a joke and then wait for someone to command you to laugh. It just happens. But actually, sometimes it is necessary to tell someone to rejoice, to encourage someone to rejoice. Think of the young child who runs to the biscuit cupboard in the house and suddenly finds out all the biscuits are gone. Crisis, tragedy. And he screams and his mother comes in and he says, where have all the biscuits gone? And his mom says, rejoice, don't worry. Uh, Mr. Tesco is coming with his home delivery this afternoon and he brings good tidings of great joy. Twixes are in his van. Rejoice. It is a call to endure. Think of those who right now for some reason are running 26 miles in the London Marathon. Over and over at every mile they will be telling themselves, rejoice at the thought of that finish line. Rejoice, stick in, keep going. A command to rejoice is actually a thing to keep us enduring, persevering. It's not insensitive, but rather, Zechariah uses it here as a means to keep his people going. And so he says to them, rejoice, even in, even although 
sorrow and anxiety is gripping fast a hold of their hearts. He says, even then, there is reason to rejoice. But if that is the case, there must be a ground for that, mustn't there? There must be a foundation for that rejoicing. Mr. Tesco must come or else the rejoicing is futile. So what is it that can keep God's people rejoicing even in the present struggles? Well, look with me at verse 9. Rejoice, shout, see. See your king. Even in your current struggle, your joy is found in beholding your king. When you perceive your king on the horizon, there is reason even for you to shout for joy. With every step he takes, he gets closer. He is your king. And he is coming to you. Well, if our joy is founded in this king, it makes sense that we spend a little bit of time seeing what this king is like. It's a bit like the, I guess, the the man who is away on a business trip. Looking at this king is no dull academic exercise. When he when his head hits the pillow in another lonely hotel room, well he gets out his photo of his family and he looks at his wife and his kids and his heart is filled with joy. And that keeps him keeps him rejoicing. When we see our king here, it is not academic, it is us seeing him, seeing his beauty and causing us to long for him. So here are four things that Zechariah tells us. See in verse 9, halfway through, See your king. He comes to you, firstly, righteous. This king is a man, but it seems he is one so closely associated with God that he is God's righteousness embodied. He is God's representative. He is the ideal ruler for whom unrighteousness is impossible and who through him will eradicate all injustice. Now, is it not true that one of the things that robs you of your joy is unrighteousness? My joy is robbed from me when I am at the rough end of someone else's wrongdoing. My joy is robbed from me when I am at the wrong end of some scandal. My joy is robbed from me maybe because there is some injustice at work. Or maybe it is my joy is robbed at my own unrighteousness, my own sinfulness. Well, behold this king who is perfect in his righteousness. Every act, every word when you see the Lord Jesus in the Gospels is perfect in righteousness. There's never one moment, never one meeting where you think, ooh, I wouldn't have said that. Or Jesus, I can't believe you did that that way. You could have improved there. No, no, perfect righteousness. Not a single thing. Though injustice may rob you of your joy, here is the king of perfect righteousness. Worthy of all joy. Secondly, and tied closely to that, he has salvation. See, your king comes to you righteous and having salvation. He is God's agent of rescue on the one hand, able to save you from all that robs you of your joy, to save you from all your struggles, but also the king in Zechariah who will save you from your own unrighteousness. If he is a righteous king and I am an unrighteous servant, then I need a righteous king who can deal with my unrighteousness. Here is such 
a king. You read through the Gospels. He is the Savior. He heals the leper. He cures the paralytic. He raises a dead girl to life. He expels the demons. And he even forgives people of their sin. We know what it is over the last months to long for a Savior. Think of the person trapped under the rubble in the Christchurch earthquake. And suddenly they hear a voice saying, is there anyone there? Or they see the flash of a torch. What is to long for the right Savior? Or for those on the houses of their, at the roofs of their houses, sheltering from the tsunami that is wiping away their village. Oh, to see the rescuer coming. To see the helicopter that brings salvation. Well, here in this king, we see a Savior who is able to save to the uttermost. Thirdly, he is gentle. He is the opposite of the proud, tyrannical rulers that we have seen on our televisions over the last month. We need not fear an iron fist. We need not doubt his tender humilities. Hear this. In your struggles, this king knows what it is to empathize with your weaknesses. Here's a king who knows what it is to be hungry, who knows what it is to be tired, who knows what it is to be in intense pain. He doesn't live off expense scandals in a second home somewhere, but he knows what it is to sympathize with you. He is gentle and he is humble. Think of the Lord Jesus' patience with his disciples. Think of him being the friend of sinners, familiar with suffering the one who can sympathize with every weakness. What joy to have a gentle king. And then fourthly, he brings peace. Look at verse 10. In verse 10, he brings complete disarmament. Chariots, war horses, battle bulls completely removed. Defense budgets are dissolved. Armed forces are disbanded. Nuclear programs are done away with. And that is in Jerusalem. The point is, They will need no protection because God has brought peace from sea to sea. From the ends of the earth to the ends of the earth. Uh, Let me say Calvin better than, Calvin say it better than I ever could. This is brilliant. The Messiah's kingdom would be kept safe because God from heaven would check all the rage of their enemies. So that however disposed they might be to do harm, they would find themselves held captive by the hidden bridle of God so as not being able to lift a finger. So peace here is the absence of conflict that God gives, but also the blessings of living a life under the God's king. Charlotte Chapel, see this king who comes righteous, bearing salvation, who is gentle and able to save. He is coming. But the question must be, okay, how are we going to know when he arrives? How are we going to spot him on the horizon? Well, what gives it away is his mode of transport. <laughs> he doesn't come on a war horse. He doesn't arrive in his mobile or with an armed guard. He arrives on the scene in Jerusalem in a donkey. <laughs> his mode of transport will be in step with his character. A sign of divine royalty. Typified by humility. And in line with his mission of peace. And so remember, this is 500 years before Jesus comes. 
even 500 years before Jesus comes, Zechariah can say to God's people, Rejoice, because far on the horizon, even though you cannot yet see him, your king comes. And even now, there is reason for you to rejoice. Mr. Tesco is coming. Rejoice in your king. Calvin again. He does not simply exhort the faithful to rejoice, but encourages them greatly to exult, as though they were already in a safe and most happy condition. So certain is this king's coming that 500 years in advance, people can rejoice in the certainty of this king. And so they wait and wait. And they patiently endure. And they patiently rejoice. Until one day, riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, comes Jesus the Christ. The one of whom who was called the Holy and Righteous One. The one whose name meant he would save his people from their sins. The one of whom it was said he is gentle and humble in heart. The one who a bruised reed he would not break and a smoldering wick he would not snuff out. And the one of whom it was said, peace I leave with you and my peace I give to you. The king came. The promise was not foundationless, but God's promise proved true as Jesus arrived in Jerusalem. This took place to fulfill all that the prophet had said. And actually, Jesus deliberately chose this means of transport. He arranged all the circumstances that he would come in showing the world that he is this king. He is this gentle, humble king bringing peace and salvation. And so what do the crowds cry? Hosanna! Oh, save, they cry. And yet he comes on this donkey to remind them to dull down their political expectations, their nationalistic expectations. He was not some insurrectionist who would bring his kingdom by coercion. His time in Jerusalem was going to be in step with his entry. He came on a donkey and he would leave by a cross where the righteous would die for the unrighteous to gift salvation and to bring peace with God. Now, what they saw as the distant future, we look back on, don't we, as the distant past. But there is a superiority to our position. There is a superior greatness to our perspective because we don't just see the seed, the promise. We see the fulfillment and the fruit of that promise. I mean, if they had reason to rejoice 500 years before the coming of Christ, how much more reason do we have to rejoice from 2,000 years after the coming of Christ? We have seen the King. We have admired His gentleness. We have received His salvation. We have seen that in high definition in the Gospels. And so we can rejoice. And so, in the words of Zechariah 9, Rejoice greatly, O Charlotte Chapel. Shout, O brothers and sister in Christ, because your King has come. Here is a joy in this King that outshines even your brightest smile. 
and a, a king who the joy in him pervades even your deepest tears. Let me quote from an old hymn. When the woes of life overtake me, hopes deceive and fears annoy, never shall the cross forsake me. Lo, it glows with peace and joy. When, when the woes of life overtake you, when tears are your food and drink, when life seems too much to bear. For this girl I met last week who had turned to self-harm and suicide, what, do, what does she need? What do you need? You need to see your king and see that even in your struggles, in him there is reason to rejoice. He doesn't belittle them, but he says from gentleness and from humility, I'm the king who brings salvation. Rejoice in your king. My guess for God's people in Jerusalem, they thought, okay, that's fine. The king is the king's coming. What do we do while we wait? He's still 500 years away. What do we do with the opposition that hits us now? What do we do with the broken dreams of today until the dawning of that peaceful tomorrow? How do we cope. I don't know if you've noticed, but we don't have worldwide disarmament. We've not yet hit that worldwide peace, have we? So what do, what do we do with this promise? Does that mean that God's promise failed? Does that mean that this king was an ineffective king? Does it mean that the cross of Jesus somehow didn't work? Well, no. Let me say that quickly. And let me show you why. Because it means that what we have in the first coming of Jesus is only the partial fulfillment of what was promised. And we still await now the future full fulfillment of what is to come. The two gospel writers who directly quote Zechariah help us with this. Matthew and John both paraphrase what Zechariah says, but if you look with me, what they do is they focus on verse 9 and they don't touch on verse 10. It's interesting. They focus on the gentleness and the humility of Christ, but they leave alone the removal of the battle bulls and the chariots. I think the point is this, that in the first coming of Christ, we have the partial fulfillment where he comes in humility and gentleness. And what we await in the second coming of Christ is the king who comes as judge to remove his enemies and to destroy those who would threaten his people's peace. See, he has come, but he is coming. And on that day, he will not enter on a donkey and he will not leave on a cross, but he will come riding on the clouds of heaven in all the glory of God. And so the question too for us, like the people of God in Zechariah, okay, okay, what do we do whilst we wait? What do we do in the meantime? Well, from verse 12, return to your fortress. He said on the one hand, rejoice in your king. And then he says, okay, return to your fortress. You'll know by now if you've been with us for the whole series that this return command has kind of been a deja vu command throughout the whole book. He said it over and over again. 
But here he says, return to your fortress. Now, is God rubbing salt in their wounds here? You can imagine him saying in response, uh, Lord, God, uh, we don't have a fortress. <laughs> we don't have a protective wall that will keep the enemy out. We don't have big armies anymore since we returned from exile. What do you mean return to your fortress? I mean, our walls are full of gaping gaps that the enemy is just invited to jab us through. Well, let me read Calvin one more time. Very helpful. For though Judah was not then fortified, nay, Jerusalem itself had no high wall or strong towers. Yet, they had God as their strongholds. And this was impregnable. Though then the Jews were not made, by, made safe by moats or walls or mounds, he yet reminds them God would be sufficient to defend them and that he would be to them, as it is said in another place, a wall and a rampart. It's almost as if God takes away their worldly sources of security. He takes away anything else that they might trust in as a fortress that they may be led to trust in him alone. And so he cries to them, return to your fortress, not meaning any physical structure, but meaning return to him. Now there's a slight surprise in verse 12. Look at what he calls the people in verse 12. He says, return to your fortress, O prisoners of hope. You can be a prisoner of hope. It may be your temptation this morning to run from God. It's just too much. The world has too much to offer me. I'm, I'm going to run. Well, know this, to run from this God, to run from this King, is to turn your back on all hope. It is to become a prisoner of hopelessness. It is to be, as in the language of verse 11, stuck in a waterless pit. If you know the story of Joseph, you'll know that Joseph was left in a waterless pit by his brothers, leaving him as good as dead. To run from this fortress is to be in a waterless pit with no hope of escape. And yet God calls his people prisoners of hope. Even though you are a prisoner to your present struggles, in returning to your fortress, there is still hope. There is one who, in verse 11, has the peculiar capability of getting people out of things like pits. It's kind of our God's backstory. It's his specialty with Joseph, with Daniel, with the people in Zechariah, with our Lord Jesus Christ. He has a strange capability for people who are as good as dead to raise them to life again. We are prisoners of hope. And so he says, return to your fortress. And look what he calls them to in verse 12. Not only liberation from the pit, but he says, even now I will announce that I will restore twice as much to you. You may be tempted to run from God because the world has much to offer. Tempted to run from him because the sacrifices he calls you to make are far too much. The present struggles are overwhelming me. What does he say? The promise of the future shall far outweigh your current struggles. 
the glories of eternity will far outshine the present sparks the world has to offer. And he is such a gentle and humble and righteous king that he will never overlook the sacrifices you make to him. He says, I will restore twice as much to you. Can I ask you, let this battle your unbelief. Let the hope of heaven put to death the power of this world. Let the surpassing glories of that call you to return to God, your fortress. But don't be deceived. This is war language, isn't it? There is need of a fortress. This is a battle. God's people, in verse 13, are going to be weapons in his hand. Don't expect to waltz your way through this life in ease and in prosperity. There is need of a fortress. I took a walk this morning up to the castle. And even at kind of nine o'clock, there were so many tourists. That castle has become a kind of uh, aesthetically pleasing picture postcard. One day, it was a vital last line of defense. The life as a Christian is not some pleasant holiday. It is a battle that we fight in. The fortress is necessary until the king comes. Listen to Spurgeon. Inside that stronghold, the most powerful guns of the enemy will not be able to injure you. But if you leave the shelter of your Savior's protecting atonement and come out to contend against your adversary in your own strength, you will be in imminent peril of being destroyed. To run from this fortress, the only fortress that offers true security, is to be in imminent peril. To run from this fortress into the fortress of financial security or family security or the security that popularity or success brings is to be in imminent peril. Well, again, we should ask, what is the surety? What is the foundation of this hope? Look at verse 11. Here's the reason. Spot the word because. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Blood has always been the means of relationship between God and his sinful people, hasn't it? Blood ratified the uh, covenant at its uh, institution with Abraham. It confirmed the covenant, the relationship with God, with his people at Moses. And continually, day by day in the temple, it was the means of ongoing relationship. And so it was with great significance that on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took blood. He took the glass of wine. And he said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. It was with great significance that when he hung on the cross, a soldier pierced his side and blood poured forth. The gospel writers will make much of the blood of Jesus. Think of the language that is used. Atonement through his blood. Redemption through his blood. We have brought near through his blood. We have peace with God through his blood. We have been made holy through his blood. 
It is the blood of Christ, which is the enduring, certain foundation of our hope of eternity. How can you be sure of hope at the second coming of Jesus? You think back to his first coming. And you focus your eyes on his blood shed on the cross. The safety of him as a fortress is directly linked to the sufficiency of his blood for your salvation. The day Jesus' blood ceases to be the only place you can find salvation is the day you should run from God's. But let me assure you, that day shall never, ever come. Hebrews will talk of the blood of the eternal covenants. How can we have that certain hope from the second coming? Only by the blood of Christ that was shed in my place. I've already quoted from Liam's favorite dead guy, Spurgeon. Let me quote from mine. John Flavel vividly writes, Those wounds he received for our sins on earth are, as it were, still fresh bleeding in heaven. A moving and eternal argument it is with the Father to give out the mercy he pleads for. Why should you return to this fortress? Why shouldn't you run? Why should you come to this God? Because the blood of Christ secures his fortress as the only place, the exclusive place of safety and security. There is no other fortress that is founded by such a sure certainty. Think to my young rugby star, this teenager. What does he need to be reminded of? What do you need to be reminded of if you are tempted to run? That if you run anywhere else, you're in imminent peril. And that he is the only fortress when Christ comes as judge in his second coming. The only place of safety. If you are a Christian here this morning and you know those struggles, you're crying those tears, you're in those anxieties, Zechariah pleads with you. He says, see your king. And even in these things, there is reason to rejoice. And he says, how can you be sure that this is a safe fortress to run to? The right fortress, the only fortress? Or see the blood of his cross. Rejoice in your king and return to this fortress. If you are not a Christian, well, know that although you may laugh at the folly of the first coming of Jesus, the weakness of it, well, know that he is coming again. Know that at his second coming, his perfect righteousness will not tolerate your unrighteousness. And any fortress that you run to for safety or security in this world, whatever that might be, that fortress will not stand. At that second coming, enemies are removed. They are destroyed that God's people might know eternal peace. We saw that in the rest of Zechariah 9. Nation after nation destroyed, writhing in agony, deserted, gone. No fortress will prove secure apart from the fortress that is founded on the blood of Christ. 
And so the same command goes to you this morning. Return. Come to this fortress by the cross of Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, it is with great joy that we can look back to that king. We thank you for his humility that he humbled himself even to obedience to death on a cross. And Father, we thank you for the blood that was spilt. His blood instead of ours. His death instead of ours, that we might know peace with you and peace for eternity. For those of us who find the command to rejoice hearts, we pray that even in the struggles, even in the tears, you would give us such a deep-rooted joy in the unchanging gospel of Christ that even now we would be able to shout his praise. Father, I pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.